If you would, open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25, as we continue our study there. This may, in fact, be the last sermon on these verses. I haven't decided yet, but it might be. We'll see how it goes. So I'm going to read verses 19 through 25. And pay attention to each of these exhortations as we go through them. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful." And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. We're not going to really do an intro or a recap of the series up until this point. If you want that, if you need that, you can go listen to it from last week's message. They're online, and I've tried to summarize this mini-series on this section of Scripture. I want to get right in to this text, this last verse, verse 25. There's just so much to say about this verse. But I do want to say one thing, or ask one thing, before we get going, and that is this. In this examination, in this study of these verses, has it done anything to change you? Are you the man or woman that looks into the clear mirror of the Word of God and then steps back and forgets everything that he or she has seen? The appeal of this text is life-changing. It really is. It reorders everything. And if you let it work into your mind, you'll see how major and massive it is. Has that happened? Has it begun to happen in your life? Maybe I can ask it this way. What sacrifice is too big for you so that you... By view of that big sacrifice that it would take, you excuse yourself from living this way with your brothers and sisters. When we read Luke's summary passages in Acts that talk about how great the community and fellowship and love was among the believers in the first century, in the church in Jerusalem and beyond, And we see clues from Paul's letters of the type of love they had for one another. And we think longingly about that type of life, that type of community with brothers and sisters. But I think each of us have something or a group of things, a basket of things that we're not willing to let go of to make that type of life the case. And maybe we tell ourselves, well, it's just so hard, or that was a unique time, that can't really happen today, and that's the way to take ourselves off the hook so that we don't have to give up whatever that is. 
The claim of these passages, and I want you to see this, the claim of these passages, this verses 19 through 25, is that there is no other consistent way to live if you confess Christ. If you believe, verses 19 through 21, if you believe that Jesus has come and he has opened a new and living way for us by his flesh and that he now sits at the right hand of the throne of God in his intermediary capacity, mediating for us as our great priest over the whole household of God, then it doesn't make any sense not to hold fast, to not draw near, and to not consider one another. Or at least make a consistent effort to do so. So I'm beginning with a call to reconsider and recommit and repent. If, if we believe this is what it is, it's the word of God, then it ought to change us. It ought to change our lives. And so my question is, has it? Or are you wanting it to at least? So I want to connect verse 24 to 25. Last week, I gave you this paraphrase of verse 24. Let us focus our thoughts on one another in such a way to spark godly love and worthy acts. That was my best way of summarizing what that actually is saying in verse 24. And the main thrust of that message, and here I am recapping, is is that we're supposed to set our minds on each other. The the exhortation is not consider means of stirring one another up, but that we would consider one another. So the author says, consider Jesus very early in the book, and then he says, consider one another. There's only two places he uses that word in this book. So we're to stir up one another to love and good works. And he uses the, the, even the Pauline Christian triad of faith, hope, and love. And if he stopped right there, if he stopped at the conclusion of verse 24, we might be left asking the question, yeah, but how? Right? Any parents hear that question or how or why or what? Yeah, but how? How are we going to do that? You haven't given us a way forward. You haven't told us how we're to do this. That's why verse 25 exists. He tells us exactly how we are to do all three, but particularly the final exhortation to consider one another in such a way so as to stir up godly love and worthy acts. That love from God should be enough in our hearts, but I wouldn't have to talk with any of you for very long to find examples in your life of times where people thought they were being loving to you, but were not in any way being a godly type of loving, right? Has that ever happened? Someone thinks they're being loving. Someone thinks they're being consistent with love. Maybe their definition of love is skewed, and they're doing something, and they think it is consistent, but it's not loving at all. So the Bible hymns us in and tells us how we are to love. So I want you to see how big this is. Verses 19 through 25 give us the essence of all Christian life in summary. Faith, hope, and love. The greatest of these being love. And then verse 25 tells us exactly in a summary way how to do that. 
So this is the Spirit himself inspiring the author of Hebrews to tell you in one verse how to do everything that's been commanded of you. A lot of you want practical, you want simple, you want boiled down. You can't get any more practical or simple or boiled down than this. Okay? And that's how, that's one of the reasons why I wanted to focus on this for a little bit longer. So let's look at it very closely. Make sure we don't miss anything. This first phrase, getting back to verse 25, I'll just read it again. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. That first phrase, not neglecting to meet together. If I were to paraphrase it, I would, it would say something like this. Not forsaking the full gathering of ourselves. And first I have a question of the author, and this is kind of how I work through texts like this. Why the sudden shift to the negative? Everything else he said in these verses has been positive. Let us do this. Let us do this. Since we have, and then all these positive affirmations, and then he switches to negative. He could have just said, and meet together. But he wants to say it a particular way. He says, not neglecting to meet together. Not forsaking the full gathering of ourselves. The only other place that I was able to find in Hebrews where he uses this pattern and he exhorts us to something and then uses a negative is in chapter 6, verses 1 through 3, where he says this. Therefore, let us, see there's that, that same pattern again, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God, and of instruction about washing, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. So it has the flavor of uh, don't go backwards. Don't regress. Don't lose the progress that you've already already have made. Don't waste time and start over. And it's the same here. The stirring up to love and good works is like starting a fire or fanning something into flame. So one of the only hobbies, probably the only real hobby I'll allow myself to have is the smoking of meats, okay? And many of you have been blessed, hopefully, and and one day all of you, all the more, uh, as I justify buying more meats to smoke and accessories. One of the most frustrating things you have to do is starting the fire, And if you're trying to be a purist like I am, you don't use tricks to do that necessarily. Use as small amount of charcoal as you possibly can. You get real logs and you start them. But it's hard, especially in a little smoke box, to get that thing really going to the level that you need it to. And it can die out in the middle of your smoking session. And then you got to start over. you got to put some more you know, newspaper or whatever it is in there. Get some fire starter and build it up again and start it all over. That's the flavor here. He says, stir one another up to love and good works. It's the idea of fanning something into flame. And, and don't start over. Don't let the fire die. Don't neglect the full gathering. Don't stop fanning this fire into flame. Don't go backwards. Don't let one another grow cold and drift. Don't let the fire fizzle out. 
And so, I just want us to be honest with each other for a moment. Have you ever experienced the alarming reality of the fire growing cold in your heart? Right? I mean... And we may be prompted to cry out to the Lord as Peter did when we feel the flames dying down and we see that there's more smoke than there is flame and nothing's really hot anymore and there's no spark and there's no embers at the bottom of it. It's just kind of smoldering. And we might cry out to the Lord and say, like Peter did, Lord, save me. And we might expect, as, as maybe Peter did, the hand from Jesus, maybe during our quiet time or something, reaching down and pulling us out of that. But instead, based on this text, what he does instead is point to his bride. Stir one another up. You are to make sure that the fire in someone else's heart, their very love for God, doesn't go out. So don't neglect, don't abandon, don't forsake the gathering together of yourselves. That's where it happens. And in this verse, this section, this phrase, we get a two-for-one punch. It's a negative exhortation. Don't neglect the full gathering of yourselves. And it's so obvious, but it's easy to overlook. If we're being told not to neglect something, then we're obviously being told to do that thing. So do it. Gather together. Spend time with one another. Enjoy one another's company. Now, I have said over and over that this pandemic has struck at the heart of the church and why it must be understood, at least in part, as God's discipline. Sort of like the destruction of the temple. Even though God had commanded the practicing of these sacrifices, He allowed the temple to be destroyed so that they could no longer obey those as part of His discipline of His people. That for a time, the ability to meet was taken away. I mean, that's stunning. And we need to be mindful and repent. So now we can, and as awkward as it might be, with all the restrictions that might still be in place, some of us trying to wear masks, some not, the command is still to gather and meet together. The burden is, is on each of us, not just the leadership to work with what we have and meet together. So let me ask this. What what does this word neglect here mean? It's the same word as forsake. And the only other place that I know of in Hebrews, as far as I could find, that the author uses this word is in chapter 13, verse 5. And I'll read it to you. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said... I will never leave you nor forsake you. It's the same word. So it's interesting that the exhortation not to forsake one another occurs before he reminds us of that treasured promise that Jesus will never forsake us. And how much we treasure that promise. One of the main reasons, I think, and I have 
believe, based on this text and many others that have biblical grounds to say so, that we have spiritual dryness or a sensing that God is far off, is that either through choices of our own or others, we've distanced ourselves from the body. We've begun to neglect. We've begun to forsake. And it's not okay. It's not understandable. And it may be that you can't be at every single Sunday gathering, and that's not the point. That's not what I'm saying. Please don't hear me say that. I'm not a strict Sabbatarian. But what this text is clearly saying, in context, that the proof is in the pudding, if you will. The degree to which you want Jesus and want to know Him is directly seen in how you want to be with the people of God. Yes, even with all their imperfections. There's no room for spiritual elitism in the body of Christ. Oh, I'll gather just as soon as I can find a congregation that's really genuine. Just think if you were a member of the church at Corinth. (laughs) With all their issues. And the Apostle Paul, the great Apostle Paul, the one who started his church, sends a letter and you you may be waiting here. Oh, he's just going to. The church is going to be nuked. He's going to tell us to close our doors. And he says nothing of the kind. He wants them to meet together more and to commit to each other more. I don't want to be overly harsh, especially with all of the, the seemingly conflicting ideas that are out there. But I have to preach in obedience to this text. By God's providence, We're here in this time. It's clear from this that to forsake the gathering together of ourselves is spiritually identical from God's perspective to begin to forsake Christ. Think of it this way. We discussed this in our Sunday evening uh, study and prayer meeting last week. When Jesus says, even as you did it unto one of the least of these, my brothers, you have done it unto me. That in and of itself is is amazing, and that's a different sermon. But in the context of gathering together, when we hear the Bible say, don't neglect the meeting together, we can interpose with your weaker or the least of these brothers and sisters with Christ. And Jesus sees it as the same thing, and his perspective is really the only one that matters. So to, to neglect and to close our hearts to our brothers and sisters and to forsake and gradually distance further and further and further from them, Jesus takes it personally. It's like you're doing that to him. Don't neglect the full gathering of each other together. So here's the question. How much creativity... And energy was spent in making sure we kept getting our paychecks and our kids kept getting educated versus how much time and energy and creativity was spent making sure we could have some semblance of meeting together. What this pandemic has unfortunately exposed across the board in so many churches is that many people, for one reason or another, really enjoyed not coming back to church or at least really enjoyed the break. Not all, of course. Don't hear me say that, but many. 
I've talked to a lot of pastors, and discouragement is ubiquitous. Okay? And I'm not talking about staying away for legitimate health concerns. We did that as a church. Aside from the pandemic, let's just take that off the table. People have stayed away for health reasons all the time. We call them homebound Christians. That's a category that exists. So for a time there, we were all homebound Christians, right? But here's what I know about homebound Christians who are genuine. They don't like that it has to be that way. And they let people know that they're involved in praying for them. And they ask their ministers to come and minister to them. And if the opportunity ever comes to re-enter community of believers, they do so eagerly. And I know this might sound very harsh, but I'm, I'm not trying to do that. The truth is here that Jesus is more compassionate than me. And Jesus loves you more than I do. And he has ensured that this is the text that we would be in at this time. He ensured that thousands of years ago, the author of Hebrews would write this for the whole church until he returns to guide how we're to be together. So even though I've felt uncomfortable saying some of the things I just said, Jesus loves you. And this is what he says. So what does it mean to meet together? I said in this, the paraphrase I gave you of this verse carries the sense of all together or the full gathering. Don't neglect, don't forsake the full gathering of yourselves. So I'm a dad of a young, vivacious little girl and a young boy. And so socket sets and coloring sets are in our house, right? And so if you have one little piece missing, you know it. Because they all have their spot, especially socket sets. You know, you have a different size, different millimeters. And then the the coloring set, if they're the nicer ones, they have a place for every single pencil and every single pastel. And then you take one out of there, and you know that one's missing. That's how you know that they don't wind up in in the crack of the couch. You know, you know you got to go find it so it doesn't melt somewhere, right? That's the flavor here. Don't forsake the full gathering. So the the question that we come with, and I know it's not possible every single time, but is everyone here? We feel that way at family reunions, don't we? You get a family reunion, it stands out if someone's gone. Or if they didn't take the time to make sure to be there. Or, oh, we're so sad they couldn't be here because of work or whatever it is. We know, we feel it when they're gone. That's the way it should be in the house of God. And I can't do it myself. That is the work of ministry. And this is me equipping you to do just that, to make sure that more and more all of us can be together. And not just in this room. Don't hear me say that. But all the more, as we'll get to in a minute. So even if you're personally present, but you're not active in ensuring that the socket set is full or the the coloring set is full then you're not really gathering. You're, not, you're, you're still kind of forsaking the full gathering of ourselves because it doesn't matter that much to you that we're not all together as a family. You might say, well, I'm here. Isn't that good enough? Isn't that what you expect of me? And how idiotic would that sound if a father said that of his children? I'm here. But we often think blood is thicker 
and runs deeper than faith. Sort of like Cain asked, am I my brother's keeper? Yes. Yes, you are. You're your brother's keeper. And so to make sure that they don't neglect the full gathering of ourselves is imperative upon you. Not just me. Don't be like Cain. We can make a t-shirt like that, right? Don't be like Cain. Right? Who is my brother? Who is my neighbor? The one who needs help. Right? The one in front of you, the one you know about who needs help. So make sure that each of you together don't neglect the full gathering of yourselves. And then he says this, as is the habit of some. If I were to paraphrase that, it kind of reads like this, as is the custom of anyone. And that's not really good English, but that's really the flavor here. If we look back into chapter 3, the author says, Take care, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. That's the same flavor here. As is the habit of anyone, meaning it could happen to anyone. Some of you, maybe, the author is saying, who, who might even be gathering together right now reading this. It could be your habit one day. So the author is not talking about some general ambiguous they out there. Those people out there who aren't serious about church. There's not an us versus them dynamic here. Oh, we're the good guys and we come to church, right? No, that's not what he's saying. He's calling attention to the fact that within each of us, or maybe within the group of those we really consider to be the us, we have a habit of neglecting or forsaking the gathering. And maybe he's reminding them of ones that they loved very dearly, who were once following hard after Christ, but now no longer. We're going to get to that in in verse 26. It's part of the reason I'm lingering on these verses, so that we're prepared to get to the next section. It's not a, we're the good guys who show up, It's a, do you see what happened? Do you see what happened? Do you see the outcome of their practice, of their neglect? Don't go that way. Do you see how disastrous it was for them to do that? And it always starts. In all my experience of seeing those who have fallen away from the faith, it always, always starts with distancing from a healthy congregation. Without exception. So what of this word, the custom, the habit? The idea here, I think, is that distance produces habitual distance. You do something once, something twice, and then it's a tradition. It's almost as if righteousness is a razor's edge, right? And we, we are walking the line, narrow as it is. Narrow is the way that leads to life. And stray but a little, and you can fall far off the side. I have a hilarious story of me not doing this very well. We were at Copper Mountain skiing. And one of the very highest ski lifts was not really a ski lift. It was like a pogo stick that you rode up to the very top, right? And so you had to keep your skis on the ground, right? 
And I didn't do that. I started looking at the beautiful scenery, and my skis went this way, and for about 50 feet, I was just drugged through the snow, and it took me a long time to get back up on my feet. And when I finally did, everyone behind me just started clapping. It was very embarrassing, okay? But how easy it is if you stay there and you keep your skis straight, if you don't begin to stray and you're paying attention, you're not neglecting what you need not to neglect, but stray but a little, and your weight then has a compounding exponential effect to take you away from the direction you're supposed to be going. That's the flavor of the gathering. Don't neglect the gathering of yourselves, as is the habit of some. It's become their custom. One degree off true north after a certain amount of time, and you're way far afield. So who do you know that has maybe fallen off like me on the skis, but relating that to spiritual life? Do you realize that it's your responsibility to go after them? That is the work of ministry. To bring them back into the fold. It's not, it's not a coincidence that the image of the church that Jesus chose is a sheepfold. And when one wanders off for their safety, we need to bring them back. So let me ask this questions, uh, this series of questions. What promotes the habit of neglect? So, so going back to the analogy, what, what promotes, for me it was I was looking at the beautiful scenery and that's not sinful, but for us in this spiritual analogy, what begins to cause us to divert, to begin to make a habit of distancing ourselves? It's a painful question because it exposes our idols. And I'll give these to you quickly. The first, I think, is contempt. Contempt for your weaker brothers and sisters. We view ourselves, and maybe we have a log in our eye, but we don't see it. We see the speck in their eye, and we have contempt for them. Can't you just get it together? Get with the program. What's wrong with you? You're not genuine. You're not worshiping sincerely. What's your problem? And so we drift. The second is comfort. Comfort with how our life is and not wanting to sacrifice our comfort and serenity for your brothers and sisters in Christ. Let me tell you something that you already know. Church is hard. (laughs) And especially if we are preferring one another while we're here, it's even more difficult. We could sanitize this whole thing and and streamline it. It would be something that everyone would maybe talk about. You know, a, we, we wouldn't ever settle for a subpar Sunday morning experience. That's not worship in the household of God. If we're preferring one another, if, we are, if, we are, if the strong among us are bearing with the failings of the weak, it's going to be a bit messy. All done in order. I'm not saying that church should be chaotic, but it's going to be difficult. And if we prefer our comfort over our brothers and sisters, we will drift or find a place where we can just go and be and not be known. The third is conflict. There's conflict that produces disunity and confusion, and it drives us apart from each other. That one's obvious. Number four is carelessness. 
being willy-nilly about the spiritual dangers that exist out there. It's as if we don't believe there's really wolves and as if we are not really sheep. Paul warns the Ephesian elders to be careful because fierce wolves will arise, not sparing the flock. It's going to be messy it's, and lives are going to be ruined. And that danger is out there and gathering together is the way we protect each other from that. And so if we're, if we're willy-nilly about our spirituality, we don't understand, we're careless about the dangers that really exist. The next is confidence or overconfidence in your own spiritual maturity and your stability and your grasp of the truth. Why do I need all these other people? I know who Jesus is. I got a full grasp of the Bible. I know a lot of theology. Why do I need them? Oh, Satan loves pride. The next is callousness. That that resistance in our heart to feel the tug of the Spirit to go back to your brothers and sisters. Did you know the Spirit wants you to be with your brothers and sisters? He yearns for that within you. And so we can become so callous, whether through sin or through deception, where we don't even sense that the Spirit Himself is drawing us to be with God's people. The next would be cowardice. We're afraid to know others and to be known by them. I've seen this happen a lot. Where just at the point where kind of the the facade, either for myself or for others, is kind of broken away and we're not really impressed by each other anymore, that's when it's like, well, I'm out. I don't want that. And the last, at least in this list that I came up with, you can probably think of more, is criticism. The spirit of being nitpicky and believing and really thinking that you're honoring Christ by pointing out all the flaws in others and of the church. The outside world has just recently coined the term on the internet, Karens, right? If you don't know what it is, don't worry about it. You're not missing out on anything. But we've had Karens and the male equivalent of that in the church for thousands of years. And that does not produce the unity and oneness we're supposed to have. Then he shifts to the positive. Okay? But encouraging one another. So don't neglect, don't forsake the gathering of one another, the full gathering, but rather be encouraging. That's, that's the flavor here. The, the, it's just one word, but encouraging. It's implied that it's one another. And this word, encouraging one another, is the root is paraclete. If you know anything about biblical theology, that's the same word that Jesus uses in John to refer to the Holy Spirit. The helper will come. The paraclete will come. It's the same root. It's a different form, but it's the same root. And it's the same that he used in Hebrews 3.13. Take care. I've already, I've already quoted this. Take care lest there be in any of you an evil unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another. It's the same word. So these are kind of bookends of this 
This word of exhortation for us to exhort one another. And this word is flexible. It can mean several different things. It can mean to admonish, to beg, to entreat, to console someone, to strengthen, to exhort, or to encourage. And encourage is probably the best uh, translation of it here. But this is the point. The idea is that it's whatever kind of help, that specific kind of help that your brother or sister needs, that's what you need to be giving to them. Some may need to be entreated. Some may need to be even rebuked or admonished. Some may need encouragement. And I would say all of us need encouragement. Some may need to be begged not to go a certain way. And isn't that exactly what the paraclete does, the Spirit himself? That whatever we need in our inner being is what he provides, and he knows exactly what we need, and he presses on us in certain ways that we don't even know that we need sometimes. And the the tense of this verb, and why I gave you this paraphrase if you have the handout, be encouraging. That that doesn't mean that you just have an encouraging persona. Is that you're supposed to be always encouraging, even as the Spirit Himself is encouraging. You don't have a quota to fill when you show up at church. Like, well, I encourage two people, or I encourage three people, whatever it is. Just be encouraging. Be about the work of encouraging. Okay, all the time. So think of it this way. If the opposite of neglecting to meet together is encouraging one another, then to not encourage one another is the main way that we neglect to meet together. Meaning this, even if we're physically present, if we're not about the business of encouraging, we're essentially neglecting. Understand this. It does not matter how many minutes you spend in this building. If you leave without actually being encouraging to someone or without at least having tried, you've not really gathered and you are neglecting the gathering. So linger. Find ways to be encouraging. Whatever it takes. What sacrifice is too big for you to avoid living this way? And this also challenges our definition for a meaningful church experience, I think. What are we after when we come in this room? What what are we trying to accomplish? What, What are we trying to do? Is it a perception of God's presence in a subjective way? No, because we're in Christ and he says he will never forsake us. And it's not how good our programs are. Because the majority of Christian history and all churches experiencing persecution right now don't have very good programs. It's not even how much we learn about God ourselves. Because that's only the first step. And if it does not result in love and good works, it's useless, as James clearly says. And it's not even, based on this text, how much encouragement you personally get. 
Rather, a meaningful church experience is how much you are able to encourage your brothers and sisters in Christ. How much you stir them up to godly love and worthy works. I don't know if you feel this way. I definitely do. That essentially all of life, all, all days, all months, all weeks are essentially in this pendulum of discouragement and encouragement. We're all somewhere in between there. That stunning prayer in Ephesians 3 that I, I've preached probably five times, I still don't understand all that Paul's talking about, is essentially a prayer for encouragement that you may be strengthened in your inner being. And Paul says to the Romans that he has much desired to come to be with them so that they would be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. And we need encouragement so much. But I think many, or maybe even most of us, are even afraid to admit that we need encouragement. Can we all just be honest? I mean, it feels so isolating, really, if you think about it. To feel that you're the only one who's discouraged, needing encouragement. That's why I'm so thankful for many who can just level with me. I've wondered at times if it's too dramatic for me to place on, on our section for the Shirey family for prayer needs is just encouragement. Like, is that overly dramatic to say? Someone may ask, oh, is, is something wrong? Yeah, yeah, we're on this side of glory. And in this tent we groan and we all stumble in many ways. Is that not enough reason to need encouragement? We all need it deeply. It's all of us. And this, this idea of being encouraged and having that effect from someone is this, this inner strength or conviction and confidence But again, I want to head you off at the pass for your own good. The command is not to be encouraged. I I, I looked, and I, I didn't look through every single verse, but I'm pretty sure that's never a command in the Bible. Be encouraged. We we have, you know, take heart or something like that. But the person who's saying that is usually offering that which he expects to encourage us. So there's never just an isolated command like, what's wrong with you? Uh, Pull yourself up. Be encouraged. Nothing like that. Encouragement comes from outside. The command is to encourage. Be encouraging. And here's the point. Do you personally want an infusion of divine power and clarity and confidence and awareness of God's presence and pleasure in your life? then join him in the work of encouraging your brothers and sisters. There is no faster way to experience that sustaining, vivid power of God in your life than to commit yourself to that, because that's what he's doing. So grab your Bible, and with love and patience, encourage someone. Yes, call them. That person in your mind right now, call them. This week, not right now. Set a time with them to meet with them and encourage them. And if you can't do that, set a time for just a longer phone conversation. And if you can't do that, send them an email or a Facebook message. But better than that, have them over to your house. Talk to them about the Bible together. 
And maybe to put it more simply, rejoice in the Lord together with them. It doesn't have to be super serious all the time. Or simply go to them after the service and ask how you can pray for them. Pray there on the spot. Maybe that won't happen every Sunday, but we ought to be looking for it. That's why I try to say at the conclusion of most of our Sunday services, after reading the benediction, now pray for and encourage one another. So as a kind of a last-ditch reminder that if you haven't done this yet, there's still time. There's still time to do so and to obey. And if you don't, or if you don't at least put forth the effort and really try to enter into this, then in God's eyes, you are neglecting the gathering. You are neglecting your brothers and sisters, and thus you are neglecting Christ himself. As a message to young people, I know many of you have just arrived back from camp. And you've been stirred by the speakers and by the events that you've had there. Don't let the fire die. Take that and exhort, encourage, enter into conversations. Yes, with people that are older than you and also those that are younger. And do this. If you claim Christ as your own Lord, this is what you should be doing. And if that begins to happen with our children, then brothers and sisters, revival is very, very near. And then he ends with this. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. We could say it this way. And even so much more as you see the approach of the day. The best indications from this book in you know, Hebrews and the rest of the New Testament, and especially Acts, is that the early church met basically or virtually every day. And American pragmatism, which is our only homegrown philosophy, has done more damage to the church than almost any false teaching of old. Because it's so subtle. And through it, the enemy doesn't attack a core doctrine necessarily, but rather he assaults individual Christians with the cares of this world and the alluring nature of riches. Does your, this is, this is, let's rephrase it as a question, does your normal pattern of life, not, not necessarily pandemic life, okay, set that aside, But what you really want your life to look like as we come out of this strange time, does that reflect the flavor of all the more? More and more. Even so much more. This does not mean, just in case you're extra concerned, this does not mean that we should meet at this building every day. But it does mean that we should be looking for more and more opportunities to gather with the people of God at coffee shops, at parks, in each other's homes, and yes, in the church building, and anywhere we can and as often as we can for encouragement. Why? Are we under obligation or just to hang out or just like I really enjoy to eat a lot? Right? Is that why we do this? No, it's to encourage one another because we need it. And to do otherwise is to close your heart to your brothers and sisters and to neglect the care of your own soul. 
So this is either a command from God for our good and for our perseverance, or it's not. And if it's not, then we can just be a country club with a confession of faith and hang out until the world ends or we die. Right? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. But if this is from God for our good, then we have to obey. We have at least need to be alerted to the fact that we need to change some things so that we can obey. How are we going to, as a church, obey the command to meet together so much more and more for mutual encouragement? What needs to change in our personal lives so that we can do that? What goals need to be abandoned for us to do that faithfully? What prejudices need to be destroyed so that we can do this faithfully? What career goals and retirement goals and comfort goals have to be set aside in order to do this? What schedules and extra activities need to be set aside for the sake of not neglecting the needs of the least of these, your brothers and sisters? Because here's... I hope you realize how, how significant that passage is. Because here's the idea. If it were Jesus, what would change about your life? If it were Jesus that needed encouragement, and he was on this earth walking around in human form, and you knew he needed encouragement, persistent encouragement, what would you change about your life? What would you give up so that you could go to him and encourage him, like the apostles failed to do in the Garden of Gethsemane? What would you do? What do you think you would do? And the point is, from Jesus' perspective, that's what you should do for your brothers and sisters. Because that's how it's going to be spoken of on the final day. And that's how he ends this, exactly. And I know this seems radical, but it's really not if we say we believe, and we actually do believe what we say we do about the Lord and his coming kingdom. And he ends with this way in the ESV, as you see the day drawing near. The, the author actually ends the sentence with the word day, so that's why I like my paraphrase. Even so much more as you see the approach of the day. What is this day? He's referring to the great and awesome day of the Lord. The last day. Judgment day. The end of all things, the day of Christ, the day when all wrongs will be utterly undone, and finally all things be made right, the day when the Lord alone will be exalted, the day of the Lord's vengeance and vindication, the day of wrath, the day of the revealing of the glory of the sons of God, the day of fire and ruin, the day of the rolling up of the heavens with a roar. The day of division between the sheep and the goats. The day when all secrets will be laid bare. The day when the foundations of the earth and the roots of the mountains will be broken. The day when everything lofty and puffed up will be brought low. The day when the rough places will be made plain. The day when the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. The day of the wedding supper of the Lamb. The day of all things being made new. 
The reason this kind of life, brothers and sisters, that I've been ranting and raving about for the last five weeks or so is not at all radical is because that day is inevitable. It's going to happen. And if I sound like a madman just quoting scripture, speaking about that day, then you have some work to do in your heart. If that day is not as real for you as the air you breathe, then faith needs to enter in. If that day is not coming, then all of this is a sham. And church, as my, one of my old pastors used to say, is nothing more than a dumb hobby if that day is not coming. But that day is coming, or God would be a liar, and the sufferings of Christ would have been for no purpose. Christ has been raised, and so we know that everything he said is trustworthy and worthy of our lives. And all of our being. Jesus didn't come up to set a permanent system of affairs with his people always in tension with the world. Where it's a back and forth between the city of God and the city of man forever and ever. No. Jesus came to set the foundation for the ultimate conclusion of all human history. Being in himself fully displayed and concluded. We do not yet see all things in subjection to him, but one day we will. Jesus will come again. Amen? And Jesus has not told us when he will do that, nor is the revelation to John meant to be seen as a cipher to be uncoded so that we would know exactly how it's all going to happen. No. But the eyes of faith see that day drawing near. The idea is almost a both and here. We understand that as we go through time, as we live one day and then the next, and then one month turns into another and one year goes to another, as we go on and on, we know that if there is a day out there that's going to happen, or since there is a day, that we're getting closer. But the flavor of this text is that the day itself is approaching. It's drawing near. According to Peter, we were supposed to be hastening the day. And it's a mystery how that all works in the knowledge of God. But but we are involved in the process of drawing that day near. Even as we pray as John did, even so, come, Lord Jesus. And so this day, this final day This great and awesome and terrible and wonderful day of the Lord is coming towards us. And the eyes of faith see that approach. It is drawing near by the eager prayers of those who long for him. And by the prayers of those who have lost their lives for the sake of the name. As they cry out from underneath the altar in the heavenly holy of holies. How long will you let this go on, O Lord? So whether that day is yet thousands of years off, or if God's patience for repentance is all but spent, either way, that day is racing towards us faster and faster. And it feels as I get older, we are racing faster and faster towards it as well.
And how will we stand in that day? How are we to strengthen our hands and fight, as we are told we ought to, not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities and powers and the spiritual forces of darkness and the heavenly places? How are we going to stand until then? How are we to be the light shining from a hill, the light on the stand, the city on the hill that cannot be hidden? How are we to do that? By not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more. When you look ahead enough, when when you think ahead far enough, and virtually for every one of us in this room, it's going to be a hundred years or less. Okay? So if you look far enough ahead, this day will be here for you. And with that magnificent revealing of the glory of God and heaven and earth remade to be our domain as we rule with Christ over all creation, and as the city of God itself comes down from heaven to be our forever home, and all of those blessings, and many more that we can't yet comprehend, are found alone and forever in Christ, our bridegroom. When that is the hope that you hold fast to, the reason you wake up in the morning and get after your day, that day in the future then you can't help but be compelled to meet together with the people of God who share that same hope, to encourage one another, to hold fast to that hope. It is otherworldly, and it sounds crazy. We can talk about being a good person, and that can appeal to the world, and we don't look so dumb talking about that. But when we start talking about the day of the Lord and what's going to happen and the reason for our hope and the reason that this isn't all just a really silly thing to do that we do on the weekends when we could be spending our time much better elsewhere, right, if this isn't real. So when we start talking about that day, then the offense starts coming. And so we need help to help each other and to receive help ourselves to hold fast to that hope. Not the appeal of Christian morals. We get to give everything we have. Our talents, our gifts and resources, everything included to encourage the ones that Jesus loves so much to hold fast to this hope. Until the end. So no more waiting around for others to jump in. We must obey. Because Jesus died and rose again. So that we would be able to do this. These are the good works that he prepared beforehand. That we should walk in them. Let's pray. Father. Even so. We pray. That you would rend the heavens and come down. Give us the strength in our inner being that we need in order to make this so in our hearts. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.